This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode contains descriptions of trauma and mental damage that some listeners may find uncomfortable. Please exercise caution for children under the age of 13. October 11th, 1973, Thursday evening. 42-year-old Charlie Hickson and his 19-year-old co-worker, Calvin Parker, were sitting on the bank of Mississippi's Pascagoula River, fishing lines cast into the water. So far, they hadn't had much luck. Charlie turned to the bait box sitting behind them. When his back was to the river, he heard something strange from behind him, a kind of zipping sound. Charlie turned back to the water and froze. Across from them, above the surface of the lake, a pair of blue lights hovered in place. Around them, everything had gone utterly silent. As they watched, the lights rotated like the revolving bulbs on the roof of a police car. Charlie realized that the lights weren't floating on their own. They were attached to an oval object hovering over the still river, about eight feet in diameter. Suddenly, a wave of white light washed over them, pouring from an opening on the object. In the opening, three silhouettes appeared. They descended on the fishermen. Charlie tried to turn and run, but he found himself immobilized, frozen from head to toe. He tried to warn Calvin, only to find that his face muscles were frozen as well. His mind went blank from fear. He could not scream. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. 
We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Today, we're beginning our story on the Pascagoula abduction, one of the most notorious cases of alien abduction to hit the American South. In the mid-1970s, two dock workers experienced an encounter with a mysterious hovering object on the west bank of the Pascagoula River in Mississippi. It remains one of the most talked about abductions of all time, and some UFO enthusiasts believe it is among the most credible. This week, we'll meet Calvin Parker and Charlie Hickson and explore their strange experience on the night of and immediately following October 11th, 1973. In part two, we'll follow how this abduction changed their lives permanently and discuss the believability of the story as a whole. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise, so head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker Jr. first met around 1964. Calvin was 10 years old at the time, a close friend of Charlie's oldest son, Eddie. The Hickson and Parker families spent a lot of time together in Jones County, Mississippi, until Charlie found a job over 100 miles south in Pascagoula. Due to this distance, Calvin didn't see Charlie or his friend Eddie for some time until his father, Calvin Parker Sr., suggested they start taking fishing trips down south. During these fishing trips, Calvin Jr. grew to see Charlie Hickson almost like family. He loved listening to Charlie's stories about fighting in the Korean War, and Charlie, in turn, enjoyed the company, since Eddie had left home to join the Marines a year earlier in 1972. Soon, it was just Calvin Jr. and Charlie going out for a beer together whenever one of them was in the other's neck of the woods. In early October 1973, their paths converged in a more meaningful way than either of them could have anticipated. Calvin worked as a welder at a Jones County machine shop for much of his early teens. By 1973, he was so trusted at work, he found himself on call 24 hours a day. The money was good, but the schedule wore on him. Freshly engaged to a young girl named Waynette, he was thinking of his future and wanted to earn some extra money before settling down to raise a family. He mentioned this to Charlie at a bar during one of his visits down south, and Charlie said he could get him a job at F.B. Walker & Sons Shipyard, where he worked. The hours were much better, and Calvin could rent a room at the Hickson's until he found his own place with Waynette. 19-year-old Calvin did not think twice about the offer. He gave his notice, drove down to Pascagoula on Wednesday, October 3rd, 1973, and moved into the spare room at the Hickson's. Waynette stayed behind in Jones County, living with her parents until the wedding. Calvin began training to work at the shipyard that same day. The next week, on October 11th, after a particularly hot and strenuous day on the job, 
Charlie visited him and suggested they go fishing. Calvin claimed in his memoir that he did not want to go fishing because of the bugs, but Charlie insisted, saying he had plenty of bug spray on him. At 5.45 p.m., 15 minutes after sunset, both men clocked out of work, got into Calvin's yellow 1973 AMC Hornet, and drove off toward the Pascagoula River. It would be dark soon, but it would be a full moon that night. They would have plenty of light to see by. Charlie and Calvin found a piece of wood to sit on and cast their respective lines into the water. Neither of them had a watch, but Calvin estimated they waited for 15 minutes without a single fish biting. They changed spots several times throughout the evening, Charlie insisting they needed to find the best place to hunker down. Calvin was more content to just chat. While he enjoyed fishing, he wasn't feeling particularly competitive that evening, so he let his line hang slack in his hands while Charlie pulled excitedly every time he felt a tug from the water. A glint of blue light from behind them caught Calvin's eye. It looked to him like a police light. His stomach dropped. Had he parked in a no parking zone without realizing it? He turned around. Behind them, in the semi-darkness, he saw a pair of bright blue lights. As he watched, they circled him and Charlie before coming to rest over the water. It was like nothing Calvin had ever seen before. The lights were fixed like headlights to the end of a football-shaped metal object hovering a couple of feet over the earth. The water beneath it was perfectly still, in fact, the object created no visible or audible disturbance in the world around it. It was like a ghost. The two blue lights continued to revolve in place. Calvin looked to Charlie, asking him if he was also seeing this. Charlie did not respond, but Calvin could read an affirmative answer in his wide-eyed expression. Then the craft opened. The white light that emanated from within was blindingly bright. Calvin said later that it reminded him of an arc welder, so bright it made your eyes hurt from just looking at it. Three beings emerged from the ship, floating at exactly the same height above the water. They were humanoid, with broad shoulders and stubby heads. They had no necks to speak of, and their bullet-shaped heads were fixed directly to their shoulders. Their skin was gray and wrinkled all over, so wrinkled that neither man could tell if they had eyes. There was a pointed nose-shaped extrusion on either side of their faces and two more where their ears would be. Their legs, if they were legs, were pinched tightly together, almost more like a singular appendage. And they were moving. The creatures drew toward the two men with alarming speed. Both Charlie and Calvin were too terrified to take a single step away. One of the creatures headed straight for Calvin. The other two went for Charlie. A pincer-like hand touched Calvin on the shoulder and he felt a sting run through his arm. The pain dissipated within an instant, leaving his body completely numb. The creatures did the same to Charlie. He found himself immobile, unable to move anything besides his eyes. These creatures lifted the helpless men off the ground, where they floated weightlessly at the same height as the craft. Then the beings effortlessly guided them toward the white light, until the light 
swallowed them both. The entire process had only taken a few moments. The men lost sight of each other inside the craft. Charlie claimed later that he wasn't able to see any walls inside, only an overpowering white glow, which his eyes could not adjust to, no matter how hard he tried. If there were windows or portholes, their human eyes were powerless to detect them. Calvin was guided into a small room, just as blindingly bright as the rest of the craft. The wrinkled alien set him on what felt like a table in the center of the room, where he lay propped up at a 45-degree angle. He watched the creature float out of sight. Suddenly, a new object entered his field of view. He described it as a bluish box about the size of a deck of cards. It circled Calvin, coming in and out of his sight. Every so often, it paused and emitted a series of clicks before resuming its orbit. After four or five clicks, another being entered the room. This one was around five feet tall and the same shade of gray as the drones from before, but it had big brown eyes that Calvin found comforting. Its skin was less wrinkled, and it was generally a more reassuring presence. From Calvin's description, it seemed more human in general than the creatures that had brought them on board. A moment later, Calvin heard a hissing sound, and he felt a thought slip its way into his mind. It said, don't be afraid. Stay tuned for Charlie's experiences aboard the craft and what these two men do once they're free of these alien clutches. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. The banks of the Pascagoula River were silent on the night of October 11th, 1973. Silent, but blindingly bright, according to Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker. The two helpless fishermen were being guided toward a strange alien craft, away from their bait box and fishing lines. The white light from the open doorway eclipsed everything as they were brought toward the strange ship. While Calvin was subjected to some sort of exam in one room of the ship, something similar was happening to Charlie nearby. He was in a state of shock. A veteran of the Korean War, Charlie was no stranger to fear, but this was light years away from the man-made horrors he had witnessed at the 38th parallel. He could not fight, he could not run. He was immobilized and weightless, being led into a craft that hurt to look at. And without the ability to blink, his eyes were drying out. Calvin was out of his sight in moments. He tried desperately to move his head to no avail. His eyes sought out any detail that would help ground him within this strange room. Then he saw it. An orb-like object separated itself from the wall and approached him. It looked like an eye. 
As Charlie watched, transfixed, the large crystal at the center of this eye revolved as if it was taking him in. After what felt like ages, it withdrew into the wall. The two drones from earlier reappeared and took hold of Charlie again. The weightless sensation swept over him, and they guided him off of the table. Suddenly, a dark patch appeared in front of him. With an overpowering sense of relief, he recognized his own bait box sitting on the bank of the Pascagoula River. The next thing he saw was Calvin, standing on the riverbank, arms outstretched, an expression of horror frozen on his young face. The drone set Charlie down on the dirt and released him. The moment they were no longer touching him, his legs buckled and he fell face first into the dirt. Charlie stumbled toward Calvin, forcing himself to his feet as he went. But as he raised himself up, he heard the same strange zipping behind him. When he turned around, the lights were gone. They were once again alone by the banks of the Pascagoula River. A thought passed through Charlie's mind unexpectedly. He described the feeling like someone had turned a radio on in his head. It said, we are peaceful, followed by, we meant you no harm. Charlie did not know what to make of the message, but what he did know was his friend was in serious distress. He had seen men in shock at war, and he spotted some of the same symptoms in the still-frozen Calvin. He shook Calvin, seeming to wake him from the trance he was under. Calvin started, screamed, and collapsed to the ground. The two men sat there in shock for a while, trying to come to terms with what they just saw. Then and there, they agreed. They would tell no one. No sane person would believe it. They trudged back to Calvin's car. When Charlie pulled open the passenger side door, broken glass cascaded over his forearm. The window had been shattered, but the glass had stayed in place until he pulled the latch. The car was new, but still took a few tries to start, to Calvin's surprise. Charlie produced a bottle of whiskey from beneath the seat and took a drink from it to calm his nerves. He offered the bottle to Calvin, who turned it down. He didn't think anything was going to help him relax at this point. Both men were thoroughly shaken. They didn't know how much time had passed since they started fishing around six o'clock. Neither of them possessed a watch. On the way back into town, they stopped briefly at the Mississippi Press Building to check if they had the time, only to find it mostly deserted and without a clock. They then resumed their drive, going in the general direction of the Hickson home. Halfway through the drive back to Charlie's place, they stopped at a local bar to sit and talk things over. Calvin ordered a beer, more out of habit than anything else. Charlie spoke up after a moment. He had been thinking throughout the entire drive, and now he wasn't sure if he could go his entire life without telling anyone about what they saw. According to both men's accounts, they were doubtful they'd convince anyone they hadn't just gone crazy. But they needed to tell someone, if only just the proper authorities. Charlie volunteered to be the one to call. He was older at 42 and more certain this was the right thing to do. They pulled over to a payphone and called the nearby Keesler Air Force Base. A tired woman answered. Charlie explained what had happened to them as briefly and calmly as he could. 
After a brief pause, the woman told them that the Air Force no longer handled those things. Project Blue Book, the Air Force's third study in the UFO field, had closed down almost four years ago in December of 69. On the other end of the line, Charlie was incredulous. If they couldn't contact the Air Force about unidentified objects in the sky, who could they talk to about it? The Air Force woman told them to call their local sheriff. Then she hung up. Charlie relayed this to Calvin and said he was going to call the sheriff. Calvin claimed he objected to this idea, knowing that Charlie had just had two drinks, which would automatically make his claims seem like the ravings of a drunkard. But Charlie was not dissuaded. He produced a dime and dropped it into the payphone. The deputy who answered seemed amused by their story and told them to stay where they were. They'd be sending someone along shortly. Around 10 minutes later, the sheriff's deputies arrived and escorted them to the station. The two men were separated and questioned by Sheriff Fred Diamond. He asked them for as many details as they could recall. Both men still seemed shaken, but refused to say they were lying, even when threatened with jail time. Calvin even claimed that jail would be better than going back to that riverbank. The deputies then escorted the men into a room together a few minutes later, the sheriff came in and questioned them both. Neither man was aware of it, but the room had a voice-activated microphone and tape recorder under the table, designed to capture suspects' conversations when they thought they weren't being watched. Sheriff Diamond knew that if the two yokels were trying to deceive him, there was a good chance they would let the act drop as soon as he wasn't in the room. Astonishingly, the tape only revealed two frantic men talking over each other about what their encounter meant. There was no new information in the tape itself, but it showed Sheriff Diamond that the men were earnest in their fear and disbelief. Around 11 o'clock, both men were released and they returned home. Before leaving, Charlie demanded that the sheriff not tell anyone in the press about this. They did not want this to become a public craze, and both men were very concerned about their privacy. When they returned home that night, Charlie and Calvin were worn ragged. Charlie's two younger children and his wife Blanche were all asleep. Their experience, mixed with the hours of panic and interrogation afterward, was an absolutely grueling combination. They went to bed immediately, though both claimed to not sleep at all that night. Worried about his hygiene, Calvin threw away all the clothes he wore that day, doused himself in bleach, then washed off in the shower. As the water cascaded over him, he thought about his family and fiance back in Laurel, Mississippi. What would he tell them? What could he tell them? The next morning, Friday, October 12th, silence hung in the air between the two men as they sat at the breakfast table. Charlie and Blanche ate breakfast. Calvin was not hungry. He also didn't know whether Charlie had told Blanche about what happened yet, so he did not want to speak a word until they left the house. They got in the car to go to work at 6 a.m. Calvin finally spoke up. A question had been bothering him all night. Shouldn't they be checked for bacteria? Who knows what they could have picked up on board the craft? Charlie told him not to worry about it they should put all their effort into seeming normal at work today. 
He could tell Calvin was still shaken by the experience and wanted to calm him down as much as possible. By all accounts, both men wanted to have just a normal day of work and put the thought of aliens out of their minds. They were not so lucky. The first few hours of work were almost normal. Calvin and Charlie reported to their respective departments and started the pleasantly mind-numbing work of assembling ship parts. For a moment, they thought they might be able to move on with their lives. The foreman, a friend of Charlie's named Jim Flint, came up to Charlie later in the morning saying there was a phone call for him. Charlie picked up the phone. It was a long-distance call from Jackson, Mississippi. The man on the other end of the line introduced himself as a reporter who was very interested in Charlie's story. Charlie hung up immediately, head spinning. Somehow, their story had gotten out. Charlie picked up the phone again and called Fred Diamond. When the sheriff picked up, Charlie furiously accused him of not keeping his word. Diamond claimed neither he nor his deputies had told the press. He told Charlie that stories like this get out one way or another, no matter how hard you try to keep them down. Charlie slammed the phone down and cursed. He didn't believe a word of what Diamond had told him. He and the deputies were the only ones who knew their story. There was simply no other way it could have gotten out. Flint approached Charlie, concerned. He had heard Charlie's half of the conversation and wanted to know what was bothering his friend so much. Charlie decided then that if the whole world was finding out about their encounter, a few more people couldn't hurt. So he told Flint what had happened to them. Flint, for his part, was understanding and sympathetic. He even made the first drawing of the creatures at Charlie's instruction. Almost instantly afterward, Charlie and Calvin got word from the general manager, Oliver Bryant. He needed to see them in his office. Bryant sat them down and asked them to tell him everything that happened last night. He had received so many calls from the press that morning, it was becoming nearly impossible for them to conduct business. So the men explained. They had an alien encounter last night, and somehow the press found out. When Bryant heard the story, he advised they hire a lawyer. By the time the lawyer arrived at around 9 a.m., Bryant had declared the workday officially over for both Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker. They needed to go back to the sheriff's office and deal with this situation. At the sheriff's office, they conferred about what to do next. Though Charlie no longer trusted him for exposing them to the press, Sheriff Diamond claimed to be on their side. The tape from the night before had convinced him that the two men were not lying. The lawyer, a Pascagoula local named Joe Kalingo, suggested they take a polygraph test. This idea was quickly ruled out as the Pascagoula Sheriff's Office didn't have that kind of equipment. At around this point, someone, neither Calvin or Charlie precisely remember who, suggested they should be tested for radiation. They had come into contact with a great number of people since the initial incident. It was possible they had affected all of Pascagoula by now. Panicking at the thought, the authorities rushed Charlie and Calvin to the nearby Singing River Hospital. They performed some tests on them there, but didn't have the proper equipment to test for radiation. So Charlie and Calvin were escorted to the first place they'd called to report the encounter, Keesler Air Base. Charlie called the drive to Keesler Air Base the longest 35 miles of his life. 
He spent every second thinking about his wife and kids. What would he do if he found out he had exposed them to dangerous radiation from another world? Had he doomed them as well as himself? Finally, they arrived and were greeted by six men in head-to-toe white radiation suits. They separated Calvin and Charlie by about 20 feet and began taking radiation readings with thermopile detectors. The men stepped back and said, all clear. Without elaborating, they took their equipment and left. Calvin and Charlie breathed a sigh of relief. They were free of radiation. But before they could relax, a door opened and a man emerged from it. He asked Charlie and Calvin to follow him. He led them down a hallway the length of a football field. Calvin recalled just how shiny the floors were, waxed so you could almost see your face in them. They were then shut in another barren room. Five minutes later, they were joined by six men, five in military uniforms and one in a black suit with a white tie. They were questioned once again, and at the end of this interrogation, they were handed two blank sheets of paper to sign. The man in the suit said they were signing the official minutes of the meeting and they would receive their own separate copy in the mail. They never did. They were driven back to the shipyard at around 4 p.m. and given the rest of the day off. Before they headed home, Fred Diamond told them they should be prepared for more questioning. An expert was flying into Mississippi to talk to them. His name was Dr. J. Allen Hynek, professor of astronomy at Northwestern University and the leading UFO expert in America. Up next, Dr. Hynek speaks to our two abductees and attempts to draw the truth out of them. Now, back to the story. October 13th, 1973. The media frenzy surrounding Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker's alien encounter was in full swing. In the past day and a half, both men had described the encounter numerous times to law enforcement and military personnel. And at this moment, they were waiting for the arrival of a UFO expert to shed light on their experience. By the time he landed in Mississippi in 1973, Dr. J. Allen Hynek had been studying UFOs for 25 years. He had been contracted as a consultant by the U.S. Air Force in 1947, working on three consecutive UFO studies for them, culminating with Project Blue Book four years earlier. He had been continuing his own private studies in the years since. While Project Blue Book had determined that UFOs pose no present military threat to the United States, Dr. Hynek was not satisfied with this conclusion. His interest in UFOs was greater than just their military relevance. He wanted explanations. Dr. Hynek was joined by Dr. James Harder, a professor from UC Berkeley who had ties to the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO. They met with Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker on Saturday, less than 48 hours after Hickson and Parker's encounter. Charlie and Calvin struck Dr. Hynek as very ordinary people. He asked the men if they would be willing to talk about their experiences under hypnosis to confirm once and for all whether they were lying. Both men, especially Charlie, were vehemently opposed to this. 
They did not want their heads screwed with after such a traumatic incident. Heineck assured them that hypnosis and mind control were not the same thing. The goal was simply to take them back to the events of the 11th and glean more details. The hypnotic technique used in this instance is known as time regression, where the hypnotist takes a subject back in time to a past event where they relive the moment exactly as they experienced it. After some resistance, the men agreed. Maybe they could gain some closure from reliving the incident. As the older and more confident of the two, Charlie went first. Dr. Harder called his attention to a spot on the wall and started making suggestions to him. Soon, he was in a comfortable and relaxed state. Dr. Harder then started to guide Charlie's memory back to the night of October 11th. The session did not last long. Charlie started panicking and crying out of fear for his life. Dr. Harder promptly brought him out of the hypnotic state and gave him tissues to dry his eyes with. The session had taken about an hour and they had gained no useful information from it. They tried the same thing on Calvin with an even more dramatic result. Calvin went into shock, what he would later refer to as panic mode, trembling and screaming for help. They brought him out as well without gleaning any additional details that they hadn't told them consciously. Not wanting to further traumatize the men, Dr. Hynek offered to buy them both dinner and talk over their experience in a more relaxed environment. They both declined. That Sunday, they read Dr. Hynek and Dr. Harder's statements in the local paper. Dr. Hynek did not rule on the believability of their encounter, but he claimed that both men were telling the truth. He stated, there's simply no question in my mind that these men had a very real, frightening experience. Under no circumstances should these men be ridiculed. They are absolutely honest. Upon leaving their office, their boss offered them two weeks of paid leave. This was partly for their own well-being and partly for the well-being of the shipyard, which could not operate properly with reporters swarming the building 24-7. Both men gratefully took the time off. Calvin left his place at Charlie's house to go back to his family home in Laurel, Mississippi. He had not informed his fiancée, Waynette, about what he had been through, and he still had a wedding coming up that November. He worried that if her parents got wind of the UFO sighting, they would call off the wedding. They would not want their daughter marrying a man they thought was out of his mind. Both men tried to fall back into some kind of normal routine, but their experiences still haunted them afterward. Charlie found himself restless without any work to do, and Calvin was prone to long, sleepless nights. About a week after the encounter, as Calvin and Waynette visited friends and family in Laurel, they turned on the TV to Channel 7. They were shocked to see Charlie there, telling his story to a news station in Hattiesburg, a town about 30 miles away. Calvin felt a rush of anger. He had gotten the impression that Charlie didn't want publicity, just like Calvin, but clearly he must have been mistaken. He had spent much of his time in Laurel dodging questions from random strangers about the event, and here Charlie was almost bragging about it to anyone who would listen. Calvin began to suspect that Charlie had been the one to report the story to the media in the first place, 
Though this would not square with Charlie's infuriated reaction to the initial press calls. Regardless, Calvin's state was unchanged. He wanted nothing more than to be left alone. There were mere weeks till his wedding on November 9th, and he wanted to put it all behind him and start raising a family. He still had not spoken to any of his friends from Laurel about the abduction, and if they had heard about it, none of them had said anything. However, he still received regular phone calls from reporters, which frustrated him to no end. As the day of his wedding drew nearer, he started looking for jobs closer to home. He didn't want to go back to the shipyard. Then, one day in the last weeks of October, Calvin's hands started shaking uncontrollably. He was trembling so violently that his brother rushed him to the South Regional Laurel Hospital. He had difficulty walking out to the car, stumbling and almost falling to his knees multiple times. When he got to the hospital, he was intermittently shaking and freezing up. Hours later, after some light medication, the doctor informed Calvin that he had suffered a sudden emotional breakdown. He did not credit his upcoming wedding or pressure from reporters as a possible cause. Calvin was convinced beyond a doubt that this was a lingering effect from that infamous night in October. After a few days of recovery in the hospital, he went ahead with his wedding. It was a modest ceremony, only attended by close members of his and Waynette's families. He had no repeat episodes during or immediately after the wedding. It seemed that, for once, things were going his way. Then he heard from Charlie again. He arrived home from work one day to find that he had missed a call from his old friend. He returned the call to find Charlie was beside himself with excitement. He had gotten them both an offer to appear on the Mike Douglas show to tell their story. Calvin was hesitant to step back into the limelight. After some persuading from Charlie, he came to believe that just maybe if the two of them appeared on this variety show together, people would stop asking him for interviews and he could go back to just being another guy in the South living a normal life. They met at the airport in Jackson, Mississippi. According to Calvin, they talked about everything besides UFOs. The show was taped in Cleveland, with Charlie once again doing most of the talking. The episode was scheduled to air later that year, on December 31st, 1973, 81 days after their encounter with alien life. After the episode was taped, Calvin and Charlie got on a plane back to Mississippi. While on board, Charlie asked Calvin how he was coping. Calvin claimed he just wanted the press to leave him alone. When they landed, the two men once again parted ways. They both had separate lives, separate families to worry about. Calvin wanted nothing more to do with aliens, UFOs, or creatures from space. And for several decades, he would be able to live comfortably without having to think about that night in October. Charlie, on the other hand, would not even make it a full month before his next alien visitation.
Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. For more information on the Pascagoula abduction, amongst the many sources we used, we found UFO Contact at Pascagoula by Charles Hickson and William Mendez, and Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My Story by Calvin Parker, extremely helpful in our research. Next week, we'll find out who else reported strange sightings that night and chronicle the aliens' return visits. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial, as well as ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Extraterrestrial is written by Robert Teamstra and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. 